Hello and welcome to our very first episode of A Little Wiser. In season six, I am joined by my producer and friend, Erica Gerard, who you all know by now. And we are going to discuss last week's episode with Amy Chesler. And okay, Erica, explain how we even decide what the F to talk about on these mini episodes. And then we decided to just go behind the scenes <laughs> of our conversation and just share it out loud right now. Okay. Yeah. Let's do it. So, well, I'll tell you what my process is, which, you know, is sometimes the same as yours and sometimes not, but more than likely we both have a sense of when we think about the previous week's episode, we think, what is this story about really at at its heart? What is it really about? And so that's the first question I ask myself. And often it's pretty obvious whether it's, you know, um, wrongful imprisonment or escaping a cult. Forgiveness. Yes. Yes. Things like that. Yeah. And sometimes there can be multiple subjects that come up. And so we choose which one we feel more called to or just attracted to in general. And that's kind of what happened with this episode, I would say. And so we decided to just talk about both and just give you both angles of some thoughts and ideas that we took away from this episode. You know, now that I think about it, like as a listener, I'm assuming our listeners or even watching a movie or a song, it's like you experience it through the lens of your life, right? Yeah. And so you find yourself or your story or your pain or your hope. So I think this is a great example of both of us finding part of our story and our past and our lessons and our own, yeah, like finding two very different things through this experience. And in fairness to you, my thing, which we'll both share our thing in a second, was less in the episode and more kind of what came up for me and something Amy and I talked a lot about and connected over in the process of negotiating and doing the interview. Yeah. I want to I want you to talk about that first because it's I I definitely want to hear. You have such an amazing perspective to share because of your history and, and your career as a journalist. So without much further ado, why don't you share what came up for you? So before the interviews, we do a pre-interview. And what that means is I connect on the phone and we talk and I get to know the person. And often in the research or what is available is it's not all there. I mean, so much of it, right, is in the hearts and minds of these people. So it's also an opportunity to think deeply about my questions and what I'm going to ask. So that is an important process. And it's also, I think, creating trust. So when we begin the conversation, hopefully the person knows me, feels safe with me, has connected with me. And by the way, some journalists do not approach it this way. They want to sit down and have the conversation for the first time. But this is this is part of my process. So in that conversation, we immediately connected on, you know, as she's sharing her story and 
we'll link to her podcast, What Came Next, this idea of true crime through the lens of humanity and the survivors. So in the case of the media or any true crime, and now it's so saturated, it's not just the old school traditional media, it's podcasts, it's books, true crime. There is a massive appetite and marketplace for it. Mm -hmm. And what gets lost in that, and by the way, I love true crime. I listen to amazing reporting and podcast, but you're so hooked into the story and the mystery and the crime and the music that you forget often. I think people remove themselves. I think you lose sight that people are in pain and suffering for decades and decades and trauma because we're so caught up in the intrigue and mystery and sensationalism. And Amy and I, for some reason, immediately went there because she's now telling true crime stories. And I spent close to a decade doing true crime, very public ones. So what I wanted to talk about, which isn't on the nose for the interview, but it came up for me and my conversation with Amy and how we connected personally, was the lens in which we hope true crime stories can be told moving forward. And what's crazy, Erica, is I realized exactly a year ago, like maybe to the date, we had a conversation with Amanda Knox on ethical storytelling. So it was very similar, but I feel like I didn't, for whatever reason, share how strongly I feel about it in my own experience. So this sparked to me like a light bulb, like, okay, I I really wanted to share this for people and even for myself, because I have a certain amount of guilt and shame for some of the past reporting. So that's what came up for me. And then something very different came up for you. Yeah. Um, oh, I can't wait to hear. I'm sure there's a lot of complexity in that. But for me, something very interesting, I found what I found very interesting was her discussion of a type of abuse that we don't hear about very often, which is sibling abuse. And when I was doing a little bit of research into sibling abuse, I learned that it's actually the most common of family violence in the United States, but it's the least reported. And when I say sibling abuse, we're not talking about sibling rivalry, which is different. Sibling rivalry is characterized by kind of a equal treatment of one sibling to another, whereas sibling abuse is just a one-sided treatment of one sibling to another. And typically, it's the younger sibling that is abused. And that was the case with Amy. She suffered physical abuse, psychological abuse, and sexual abuse from her brother. So I just find this so fascinating because how can this type of abuse, sibling abuse, be the most common and yet we don't talk about it and it's not reported? And I think, you know, in a lot of cases what happens is is we chalk, thing, we chalk it up to just the way kids are, yeah. the way that siblings ridicule each other, siblings wrestle a little too hard. Siblings 
can have all kinds of harmful interactions, but there are real adult consequences to those interactions. And when I say ridicule or contempt, I'm really talking about the degradation of self-esteem. And we all know that building healthy self-esteem as a child is so vitally important to being a healthy, functioning adult. And yet, why is it that so few of us look to the ways that siblings relate to each other as a cause for all types of psychological problems and issues later in life. The research also says that adult sibling abuse survivors have much higher rates of emotional cutoff with their brothers and sisters than what is evident in the general population. So emotional cutoff, what does that mean? You mean long term they cut off the relationship? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, I th- not knowing the research, I think you're probably spot on that it's discounted because there's this other thing, sibling rivalry, that it gets confused with. So it's like, oh, yeah, my brother was mean to me too. But what I hear you saying is there is, and it can be emotional and physical, obviously physical and sexual. And my guess is that it's also confusing for the sibling who is on the receiving end or the victim of the abuse because it's easy to wrap your head around a parent who abused you, but maybe later in life you're saying, I had a great relationship, you know, with my mom, and you you don't understand the toll that the degrading or the demeaning cuts or whatever harmful behavior. So I think it's like minimizing it based on this understanding of, oh, sibling rivalry happens. The distinction of the two is really important. Oh, totally. It's so important. And what I also found really interesting, and I think this is probably super common in families where we have a single mom and then an adult or an older brother and a younger sister dynamic, which is what was happening in Amy's situation. Because the older brother often gets, and listen, I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a doctor or scientist or researcher, but I can speak to this just from my own personal experience that commonly the older brother has to step in in a way or feels like they need to step into that kind of father figure role in absence of a paternal presence in the house. And if not kept in check, if the if the parent isn't aware that they are, you know, parentifying one of the children, that can really go off the rails and it can turn into this need for control or domination over the household and over, unfortunately, the the younger sibling in Amy's case. Yeah, I think the implications are so much bigger than we've talked about societally. And 
So I, I think this is a really important conversation and understanding about our family of origin. And my hope is if somebody was on the receiving end of that, that that maybe just the awareness alone allows you to process it. Yes, yes. And, you know, if you are someone who is considering or or thinking about any type of sibling abuse that you've experienced, I would absolutely say, you know, that is something that having the support of a of a professional therapist would be incredibly helpful and important because sibling physical abuse is actually more common than peer bullying. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult though to calculate the exact rates because it's still heavily underreported. And I think the more people start talking about it, the more people start raising awareness about it, the more we can, as we do on this show, keep things from being hidden away in the darkness and and bring them out into the light. Yeah. I love that. I really like your topic much (laughs) more. I mean, they're both so interesting. I want to talk about your topic. No, but I think, yeah, you said you tied that up so beautifully that the point of the show is to bring things into the light, to make people think differently, to be seen, to be heard. So I, so I, I think that's really an important conversation because obviously I can guarantee that, that this is going to connect with somebody listening. So, so thank you for, yeah, just pushing to bring it up because I think it's important. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, my um, my topic, which at the moment I'm less interested. <laughs> I'm not. Well, let me give you kind of a leaping off point that I want to okay, talk okay. about. I'm going to talk about, for me, what stood out as the most memorable moment from your conversation with Amy is when she was talking about this idea of you know, sensationalizing true crime or – Yeah. And she was referring to this podcast called My Favorite Murder. And she was like, my mom is not your favorite murder, okay? Yes, yes. And I was just like, oh, mic drop, you know, because I, I don't listen to that podcast personally, but I know it's very popular. I was horrified at – the notion that we just willy-nilly listen to these podcasts because we don't really consider the full human behind these stories. And I can't imagine how that feels to to be objectified in that way. Yeah, I think it's just, like I said, I listen to true crime podcasts and I I like some of them. And especially when there's really good, thoughtful investigative reporting and and everyone's voice is heard and, you know, heard in a really aware and intentional and compassionate way. So I do think there is a way to do it where I have, maybe it's guilt or a perspective, is that my job was often negotiating the interviews and negotiating Mm -hmm. access. Mm -hmm. And that means establishing personal relationships because nobody is going to share information, trust to be the outlet and the person that they share with unless there is trust and a connection. And 
what I found is a family member, and by the way, of a victim or a perpetrator, because the parents of criminal who is mentally ill and they are suffering too. So I would be literally in the kitchen, sitting down with the family, having a meal on the phone. The media quickly becomes very immersed, or they did in the past when I was doing it. So now I see them as people, as people deeply suffering. And I see them as human because their friends and neighbors are showing up, they're hugging them, they're crying, people are bringing food. And again, both ends of the spectrum. And then in some cases, the interview happens and then it's shipped off somewhere and there's blood splatter and it's like, dun, dun, dun. And you can't get out of your head. Well, first of all, it, it feels like sneaky in a sense. Like I'm showing up here and connecting with you and building trust and and then treating you as if you're, you're horrible, awful circumstances or entertainment. Well, to be fair, I mean, they fully know what they're showing up for and they've agreed to it. I'm just in defense of journalists who this is your job, this is how you make a living, and there is value to be gained from these stories if they're told in a proper and sensitive way. But I think what I'm hearing you say is a lot of times there's little control that, especially, I know you've told me this in the past, that like once you've handed off your story, you that's it. Like you don't have control over how it's. Which is why I don't hand off my stories anymore. Right, except to me. <laughs> why I only hand off my stories to smart people I trust who have a beating heart. Um <laughs> So I, yes, that is far in my past. I was young. I was working for big media outlets. Those shows like rate like bananas. They sell advertising. 15 million people would watch them. We would be like with Joran Vandersloat. I mean, prisons and the families. And it rated. It sold advertising. There was massive appetite. Everyone was on the front of People magazine. But I think what's get lost is these are people. <laughs> like, And so I, the disconnection – and I have – listen, we have done a fair amount of true crime on this podcast. Yes. And we'll probably do more. I find it, from a storytelling aspect, fascinating. My point is about doing it with thoughtfulness and care. And I maybe that's becoming more common, but I think for a long time it was really rare. And I saw the underbelly of that and the layer of suffering that it added to people who were already in a living hell, right? right. Um, Did you stay in touch with any of these families once you kind of – well, first of all, can you explain – for those of us who don't know, how how was the interview conducted? Did you did you go to their homes? Did you spend the day with them? How does that come for, to to fruition? So it depends on the profile of the interview. So if 
the world is watching and it's Monica Lewinsky and there would be people from every high profile, famous, top tier journalist outlet working with publicists, with attorneys, with her families, with her former colleagues, with her friends to gain access to her to get the negotiation to have the first interview. And when people, there's that much pressure and attention on them, um, and sometimes based on legal, based on them being defamed or the fam- the reputation of their family, they're in- they are personally driven to talk or defend themselves. Can you give us like a real world example of one that you worked on? I think that would be so fascinating. Yeah. So an example would be because we're going back 20 years to the murder of Natalie Holloway, the murder of Lacey Peterson the allegations against Kobe Bryant, the Michael Jackson trial. The Menendez brothers, was that done too? Menendez brothers. Uh, I didn't work on that. Okay, never mind. Sorry. I was supposed to do Amanda Knox, and it was the week that I quit. So uh, they obviously took me off the story. So to think about it in real terms, so the Murdoch family, what my job would be is to go to that town, embed myself. Oh, Elizabeth Smart kidnapping. I did that one. Yeah, negotiated that, formed a relationship with her family, with her. We flew her to New York. We set up meetings. So in this, the stories that were of that scale, where they were becoming household names, I would not conduct the interview. I would negotiate the interview because a major famous journalist who's an anchor of a television show or is is not going to be in a position to spend a month and Lord knows where, small town Modesto or wherever the crime happened, negotiating literally on a daily basis and getting information, right? You're meeting with law enforcement. You're meeting with prosecutors. You're meeting with family members and friends. So my job was go in negotiate all those relationships. So if it's a big, big, high-profile interview, like in, let's say, the Murdoch, they get some massive interview. The person who had my job is not conducting the interview. They're negotiating the interview through trust and relationships. There are times, many times, when I did the interview as a field producer But it was lower profile stories. It was just like, oh, a 2020 Dateline-esque thing on this true crime. And there's side players and cousins and family members. So those sort of lower profile, that's when I would have a very long conversation like I do on All the Wiser, but six minutes of it would air instead of what you and I do, which is give context and fairness and space for the whole thing. So it would just automatically be the six minutes pulled out that sometimes were the most emotional and and dramatic, sometimes the most sensational. But that is what hooks, right? That is what is entertaining. So that was my job. Do you have any regrets? And if so, what would they be? Yeah, we I worked on the Kobe Bryant trial, and there was he was side player sounds like a not the alleged victim, but he was very much a part of the trial and 
worked as a bellhop and was with the alleged victim within the same window. So it was about, you know, sex and and very much so he at the time was part of this mystery, right? And there was a ton of coverage. And I got to know his family very well, very well, you know, be developed really a friendship with them. And when we ultimately did the interview, they felt like it was embarrassing. It misrepresented him. Mm-hmm. They had trusted us and this was their son. And they were nothing short of angry. And while I was not, you know, the anchor or the producer who edited it, I was, they trusted me, right? They trusted me to go with the outlet. And they were hurt by it. And they were obviously already in this media spotlight. So that would be a good example. And that is very common that they feel like I handed myself over to someone and this wasn't handled with care Mm -hmm. and now this hurts even more. And so what if that is the case? What happens after that? I worked on it with another producer. We did it in partnership. She's an incredible person. Love her. Still a journalist. Really smart. And they were furious and called us and were emailing. And we both legitimately really liked this family. We had spent so much time with them, months and months and months in Colorado. And I felt like a piece of shit is how I felt. Mm -hmm. And so that feels shitty. Do these families – Do they have recourse? No. There's always like protection on the front ends and releases and stuff. Now, I have to say there is a million examples of beautiful stories, stories that people shared and helped solve the crime, find the person, an outlet for somebody to correct a mistruth about their character. So it doesn't always end that way by any means. And there was aspects of my job that I loved and filled me up. And there are so many good people doing that work. That's just one piece of it that was very difficult for me. And I ran into it more with the true crime. And so that I have a hard time removing myself, separating myself from just saying, oh, well, that was professional. I'm going to move on. Like personally, I feel like I hurt somebody. Mm -hmm. So that makes me think about the takeaway that Amy shared when you asked her what she wants listeners to take away from her story. And what, what she said, which I thought was so interesting because she could have picked so many things to take away. But what she said was that one person can have an incredible impact on another person for the good or for the bad because she mm-hmm. she really talked about on the good side, there was that – was it a, a mem- member of law enforcement who who helped – put him away for good um, instead of him ending up back on the streets and how she'll never forget that kindness that he did for her. And then there was the, okay, yes, one, her brother's impact, the murder will, has changed lives forever. And what I think she was getting at was 
we all have a choice every day about how we show up in the world when we are in relationship with other people and that we shouldn't take that for granted, that we shouldn't take for granted Mm -hmm. that we may not know how we can change someone's life for the better or for the worse. And it sounds like in your career, you were able to, you know, have meaningful relationships with families, be a soft spot for them to land, to tell their stories. And you probably made quite a beautiful impact. But then there may have been instances where like with the Kobe Bryant trial, you feel like, wow, I really impacted this family's life in a negative way. And there are the opposite. There are families that there was a murder trial in Newport Beach, Ryan Hawks, and that was their son. And like Ryan and I, till this day, I could call him and we just, I was in it with him and we just developed a great trust and connection and friendship. So there's people I'm still connected with on social media. There is victims and family members that I feel like I could, you know, show up and say, oh my gosh, been a million years, let's meet for coffee. So there was lots of true connections and respect and trust and things that were handled with care. But when it wasn't, it was, for me, caused a lot of guilt and, you know, Mm -hmm. shame almost, I Mm -hmm. think. Yeah. Yeah. And look what came out of, I mean, I'm not saying that's a direct correlation, but I know that your intention with starting this podcast had something to do with you wanting to tell stories from an intentional perspective with a lot of sensitivity and to really minimize harm. A hundred percent. Yeah. I'm really glad we talked about both of these things because I hope the sibling piece motivates other people to go to therapy and my talking out loud (laughs) about covering true crime and feeling like I hurt people was my own therapy. So that's the lesson of the day is talking through something with a friend or your listeners who you love or in the many cases where we need the support of a professional is really helpful. So as always, I like to end these mini episodes with a challenge. And one challenge is that if you were a victim of sibling abuse, that you reach out for support and find a therapist that you can process that with. And the other challenge is the next time you are watching Dateline or listening to a true crime podcast. Well, what would you say, Kimmy? You give that challenge. Yeah. I just think remember if you're in a position where the media is telling your story of heinous crime or violence or suffering, one foot in front of the other is hard enough. Just think they're a person doing their best going in the kitchen, (laughs) making a cup of coffee, taking care of their mom or child. And just remember that, that that, that they're human and they're real. All right. Well, um, sneak preview of next week's episode? Yes. 
Oh, wow. Where to begin with this? Next week's episode is with a incredible woman I have come to know. I, I think here we talk about it. Sometimes you connect with people and it feels like a new friend. Haley is a transgender woman who was formerly an F-1 bomber pilot fighting for this country and is a really uh, – has never shared her story ever. Um, so this is really, really brave for her because her family and her friends and, you know, thousands and thousands of people are going to hear it. And we did it in person. And she comes to it from such a – I don't know, just a, just a real – place. I I think in this issue, obviously, right now of transgender people is very heated in our country. And I think listening to just her personal journey and her own humanity, is it was really impactful. It was impactful for me. And I know anyone who listens will feel the same. Awesome. We'll look forward to that. And any yeah. last housekeeping items we have for our listeners? Oh, <sighs> Share your favorite episode with a friend. We love the work we do and we want to reach more people and we are working really hard and having fun with a lot of amazing stories we're going to share with you this fall. Awesome. So let's do it. Love you, sister. Love you.